podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Let's get ready to rumble! Hello everybody and welcome, it is the Anfield Index Face of Fan Reaction, I'm your host Kay. Well, we did a job on Watford, wow, what a result, what a game, we just absolutely stormed away, it's going to be known as the Mo Salah game because the only thing he didn't do last night is walk on water, we will have to settle for ice. Anyway, I have got two Reds actually here today, we're going to have a little bit of a different program to usual, we'll of course discuss the match, but then we'll move on to other stuff. First off, I've got with me, he's been on the pod before, AI writer Tom Holmes, how are you Tom? Yeah, good thanks Kay, uh, absolutely buzzing after yesterday to be honest with you. Yeah, it's one of those games, Tom, where you just feel it could be a potential banana skin. We did get to the next stage of Europe, we, but, you know, the last game against United wasn't all that great. So, I mean, it was, especially when you look at Watford and what they have, that those big defenders, those big forward line and what they can get in amongst our weaknesses. It was such a nice feeling to just score so early. How'd you feel when that first goal went in, Tom? Yeah, I was really relieved, really relieved when Mo scored. Um, I was just, it was funny because about, about 30 seconds beforehand, I said, Mo hasn't touched the ball yet. And then he touched the ball twice. And obviously the second time he stuck it in the back of the net, which is what he's good at. Yep, yep. And on to my second guest now, also known as the Ace of Knaves on Twitter. He was with me on the South African podcast with Lloyd Hicks. Warm welcome to Tadiwa. How are you, mate? Hey, man, I'm good. And you? Especially after that one. No, I'm good. I'm good. What was your reaction to the result, though? Um, it was it was good to see the transition that we've made uh, from the last time we played them at the beginning of the season. Um, it's it's good to see the team now sort of knows the system and trusts the system. So that was pretty cool. I think the blueprint was set with Swansea uh, when we played Swansea, and obviously they were the one team that was successful using sort of three at the back. Um, so I, I'm I'm expecting a lot more teams to try try that system. But um, I think that they, they they didn't show as much fight as I thought they would, in the sense of um, yes, they, they they were willing to play football, which was nice to see. But um, I don't think they 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 truly um, knew what they what they were coming up against. Having played us early in the season, they got the three three. I think they still thought maybe we can bully these guys. But it's a completely different team that's playing now than the one we played then. Yeah, before the game, Tom, we saw a lot of weather around in England, as you guys call it over there, some really atrocious conditions in other places in England. I was a bit worried about how the icing conditions will affect the game. Were you worried at all? I did, actually. I was really worried in the opening couple of minutes. I was thinking, is this going to affect our game? Are we going to be able to pass it as slickly? Are we going to overcompensate? Because, I mean, we have struggled before with these these sorts of conditions. I think uh, I think someone made a good point about how... You, in the United game, United oversaturated the pitch, which made it a bit more difficult for us to play against them. But I mean, ultimately, we just made it look easy. We didn't really. Uh, we we took any external factors out of the equation with a, with a with a lightning start, and then we just kept playing some brilliant football. Uh, and I mean, the weather wasn't as bad as uh, as it was in somewhere like Stoke or Birmingham. The Midlands have been pretty uh pretty horrendous. I mean, I don't know if either of you've seen the Stoke game on match today, but it was a uh, horrible horrible conditions. But no, yeah, in the end. It was one of those things where I was worried about it for a couple of minutes, but then obviously, as as you say, the early goal really just settled all the nerves and made everything just a lot easier. Let's stick with our first goal. Let's talk about it because that's the first thing that really happens in the game. The game doesn't even really have time to settle down yet. And Mo Salah has already got a couple chances in the game. But twice with those two chances, it seems that the underfoot conditions made it very difficult to defending. I thought when the goal came, Tom, I thought that the defender had slipped because of the the ice, you know, that was uh, that was under you. I thought that his, his footing had went, but it wasn't. It was just Mo Salah's absolutely ridiculously good work. He absolutely turned him inside out. Absolutely broke his ankles. Just sent him sent him on the floor. Rumors rumors have it that Britos is still lying on the Anfield turf, unable to quite process what's happened. Um, I thought it was very very strange from from Watford defensively because if you've got if you've got a five at the back, I just think. It's Anfield, and the first five minutes of the game, you've got a two-on-one, two-on-one, the best player in the league. I just thought it was absolutely bizarre that Holobas was so, was nowhere near him, and then 
Obviously, Salah, I mean, Salah gave Brett Austin nightmares all day. But 30, as I say, 30 seconds before he scored, he got in that channel and Bretos couldn't get near him. And that should have been a warning sign that Holobas needed to get back. I mean, Holobas in the end did get back for large periods of the first half. But to, to allow Salah to, if you're playing a back three, to allow the winger to one-on-one your inside centre-back is just suicidal. And it ended up proving suicidal because Salah just absolutely destroyed Bretos. And it was like... It, I, I thought it was, I thought right from the off, I thought, oh, okay, Mo's up for this today. I thought it was really interesting. After about 10, 15 minutes, I kind of thought Mo had been a lot more involved in the game than I'm used to seeing from him, because quite often we'll see Mo turn in a performance where he'll just sort of, he'll he'll get in the box and he'll score the goals. And sometimes that's all he does. Sometimes he can have not, not necessarily a quiet game, but he's more of an impact player. Whereas in this game, he was absolutely running the show. He was our best player for the entire game. And that was even before he ended up scoring two, three, four goals. So I thought he, I thought he played really, really well. He was running the ball really well. He was passing the ball really well. I just thought it's been a while since I've seen Salah so up for a game and so dominant in the game. And as I say, that's even before he scored the second, third or fourth goals. I thought oh, Mo, Mo's on for one today. Yeah, it's Diva, you know, from a Watford perspective, it was a bit of a different setup to the one we usually see. And they seem to be having a bit of trouble getting to terms with what they should do. And you always want to commend teams. It's lovely to see teams trying to play, to, to be progressive on the field. That seems to be a more like a continental influence going on at Watford at the moment. But do you just feel like, the, you know, it almost looked like they didn't really know what to do after a bit of time. They, they sort of got a bit demotivated almost uh, to an extent, uh, not a lot of application. Do you just feel like maybe they were just too open? Maybe they just needed to lock it down, especially in that first 15 minutes of Anfield. Literally everyone was saying that they didn't seem to do that. Do you think Watford were too open for the game? Yeah, I think I think they they would have liked it to be a little bit tighter, and especially if you're coming to Anfield. And I understand there there are some teams that are wanting to play football, and I do respect that. You get the Bournemouths and 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 the likes that that are willing to play football. But surely you'd think within the first ten minutes, or sort of the, the if you were to give a a pre-match speech uh, as the coach of an opposition team, you'd say the first ten fifteen minutes, let's keep it tight. Um, let's clear the balls away. Let's not try and, and and mess around at the back there. And then once we've gotten into the flow of the game, then maybe we can start to to play. But it seemed like from the first whistle, they they were kind of willing to go toe to toe with us, which was quite a quite a risky thing to do. And um, we also have to take into consideration that. Yes, Salah is at, um, freakishly good at the moment, but there's a lot of players that Liverpool are using to create space for him. So if they are double-marking Salah, that means they're not double-marking Firmino. That means they're not double-marking Mane. So I think there's just too many players for you to be able to pick up, um, to single out one player. And unfortunately for them, we, we expose them to deadly effect. Yeah, yeah, Tom. And, and... Looking at the, you know, the first half, it was a bit of a strange one because we scored so early on and then there was almost like an expectation we're going to steamroll them, but then it sort of didn't happen. I thought we were really up for the game. I thought Liverpool came in with a quite large enthusiasm for wanting to do things. And I don't think we ever stepped off the pace in terms of seriousness. We didn't really, you know, we didn't really let Watford get within an arm's length at any one time, but after we score the fourth goal, we sort of just relax a bit. We we take almost a step back without letting up uh, particular areas of pressing and management of the game uh, with pressing in those particular areas. But Watford sort of grows into the game a little bit and they take it to us. And it was almost like they jolted us out of the little reverie we were in. As soon as they came out, we turned the game around. Then we took up the game. They had a good about half an hour or so. And after about half an hour, um, they started coming into the game. And then we took the game to them. And it was late in the second half when we sort of scored the second goal. But it was only after that they, they came about that we sort of got out of that whole thing. This is something I think I've actually seen from us the last few weeks. And I think it's something that's actually over the course of the season is starting to really work out, which is that we tend to keep thing, we tend to keep the tempo quite low in the first half. We tend to just sort of dominate the possession. We don't let teams get at us early. We don't let teams dictate the tempo in the first half. So the first half, we sort of kill the game a bit. And obviously, if we score early, that definitely benefits that because it means we can coast a bit. But equally, we often tend to do that at nil-nil as well. We just sort of let the game, let the game do its thing, settle into our groove. And then in the second half, we tend to catch teams out on the counter-attack. And I thought, 
But I agree. I thought uh, I thought it wasn't. I completely agree. It wasn't until Watford came into the game about the half hour mark. I mean, it was after Emery Chan went off. After Emery after Emery went off, there was about a 10-15 minute spell where we couldn't get control of the midfield. But then after that, that enabled us to transition quickly to the counter attacks. And obviously, this um, obviously the second goal was the great best example of that. But there were a few examples before the goal that really showed it was coming. There were two offsides that were really poor decisions from the line out uh, with um, when when Sadio could have got that penalty and before then when Firmino was running in behind. So there was a couple of real warning signs. And then obviously the, the counter-attack, the brilliant pass from Milner that led to um, Salah finding Bobby for that decent save. Um, so there were clear signs that when once, once Watford woke up, they were almost architects of their own downfall. I mean, that's the, that's the issue. How do you play against this Liverpool team? Because if you sit back and you let us dominate possession, sooner or later we're going to create chances. But if you try and attack us and come at us, that leaves more space in behind for us to play our game. So I thought I thought Watford for half an hour were very lethargic. Then when they got into the game, yeah, as I say, when Watford actually started playing football, that was when they, they fell apart defensively and, and we were just able to pick them off. Yeah, to do let's move on to that second goal now. Lovely flowing Liverpool move. Um, it just happened, like we were talking about, when Watford is starting to come out of the shell a little bit. But just such a great flowing move. You have the, the hockey assist from Mane putting it just in the perfect position for Andy Robertson who can get his head up, send it over to Mo Salah, goal, no problem there. Andy Robertson had an absolutely brilliant first half. Yeah, it, it was credit to, to the willingness he has. And you can hear sort of from the way Gerard speaks and Klopp has mentioned it before. He seems like he's very willing to learn. He seems like he's open to, to being coached, which is something you love from from a young player and in terms of his development I think it's summed up quite perfectly in that goal in that he he gets the ball sort of on the left hand side of the pitch and he has a very easy pass where he could play it backwards towards Virgil van Dijk and then we just recycle the whole move again we try and move them out of defense but if you watch he actually plays an incisive ball between two of the Wolves players infield towards Mane and as soon as he plays it he's on his bicycle and he's gone and credit to Mane because the pass that, that hockey assist, um, the ball sort of was stuck under his feet and you can imagine what the, the way the weather was. It didn't really, his touch didn't really allow him to get it out of his feet. So he sort of had to jump when he was playing the ball. And, and obviously it's a ball with his left foot, um, that sends Robertson flying down the, down the byline. And it's, it's a good ball in that Robertson doesn't have to do anything to adjust his speed. He doesn't have, he doesn't have to take a touch, you know, to settle the ball down. It's perfectly placed for him to look up. And in terms of looking up, it's something that he's, he's started to do a lot more as the season has gone on. And he looks up, he sees Sal at the far post. Um, he plays a peach of a ball. I mean, the keeper thought about coming. It's, it's that corridor of uncertainty that we like to call where the keeper, he, for a second, he thought maybe I could get to this. Then he realized, no, this is too good a ball. And Salah's at the back post to, to finish that off. It's, it's clearly a training ground move. Um, and it's nice to see Robertson actually pick his head up because at the beginning of the season, he was sort of just playing balls into dangerous areas, but not necessarily playing them into a man. And when you have a team like Liverpool, we're not very big on being dominant in the air or flooding the box and scoring headers and stuff like that. So you have to be particular in who you're passing to when when you're crossing into the box. And it, it was just lovely to see. Tom, if we move it on to somebody who perhaps didn't have the best of first halves, we saw a, a tiny bit of a mix back from Henderson, but not a lot of good stuff, especially, I thought, on the ball. Um, he did have a really almost a good through ball for Mo Salah you know, in, in the opening minutes, but he, he did give it away a lot. He was dribbled past a couple times and um, he maybe caught out of position once or twice. But is it, you know, is it a testament to the Liverpool side and how they're playing that they can sort of carry somebody like that? Because if Jordan Henderson is doing that and not having a great game, you know, usually when you win 5-0, it's like everybody has done such a, you know, absolutely incredible job. Whereas we had Jordan Henderson, perhaps as some people might see it, not doing a job to the fullest of his capability. What did you think about that? Is that a testament to how good Liverpool are at the moment that the system can allow for that sort of performance? I thought I thought we played excellently, to be fair. I thought in that first half in particular, I thought we dominated the game really, really well. Um, I thought, obviously, as I said, uh, when Emery came off, we did have that patchy period where Hendo just had a couple of moments where he didn't turn quickly enough and his pass wasn't quite there. 
But I think it would be unfair to necessarily say we were carrying him. I don't think that's necessarily a fair assessment of the situation because I did think, other than a couple of shaky moments, I thought Hendo played pretty well in that first half overall. Um, yeah, I, I, as I say, I think we just kind of struggled that little bit once Emery, because when because I think Emery is such an important player in this midfield. Um, we'll probably talk about Emery a bit more later on, but I've seen a few times this season we tend to implode when Emery comes off or when Emery hasn't played. I think it's been very, very noticeable. Uh, I think the Sevilla second half, when Emery came on, we looked a lot better. The City second half, the fourth in the 4-3, when Emery came off, we fell apart defensively. Um, the West Brom game is actually one that I want to highlight for the almost the opposite reason. Um, in that, that's the only game, this the West Brom game that we lost 3-2, that's the only game I've seen Emery this season have a bad game. And as a result, we conceded three goals and we struggled. And we, you know, we completely fell apart defensively. So I think it's very, very telling that this midfield is kind of reliant on Emre for large periods um, to do the defensive job. But that said, after that kind of shaky spell, as I say, that did open the game up for us in the sense that it allowed Henderson and Milner to play some more uh, expansive passes in behind. Um and I thought Wijnaldum had a good game, which helped make up for Henderson's couple of errors. And I thought Milner was solid as well. So, yeah, I think it was a case of Henderson having a shaky 10 minutes or so. And the team looked a bit ragged in that. Because, I mean, there were periods that first half where we didn't look as comfortable as we might have done. Uh, overall, overall, it's easy to look back and say, well, actually, Watford didn't do that much. But I thought Hendo had a rocky 10 minutes or so. But overall, I thought he was OK. I don't, I don't think he did a whole lot wrong. So to deal with essentially, I thought this sequence of play just entirely killed off the game. You had your goal at the end of the first half and then the third goal at the beginning of the second half. And that was, that was really all she wrote. You know, it was, it was the end of the game there for Watford. But let's talk about that third goal because Mo Salah chases down this ball. It sort of feels again like the Watford defense had sort of almost given up on it and suddenly Mo is there and then they you know they then suddenly oh wow we realize that we have some defending to do which is uh, not great from their perspective but Mo gets the ball sends it in I don't know if we can call Bobby Firmino uh, if we can call it another Bobby Firmino no look goal but it is certainly whatever you want to call it one of those sexy bastard goals that only Roberto Firmino could do and he was brilliant in this game again we saw him uh, running back tracking back into the midfield uh, doing his usual defensive duties and threading the play up front it, it it's a special player we've got on our hands but uh, what did you think about that third goal and the performance of Roberto Firmino in general first of all it's definitely a no look goal we we are adding that. We're definitely adding that to the list of no look goals, and um, and that the 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 third goal definitely showed the work rate that the that the front line is willing to go through. I mean, if you look at the ball that's played through to to Salah, he's on the right wing. He's one on one with the defender, and the defender's fortunate enough to flick the ball away, and it's heading for a corner. And no one would begrudge him if he let that ball go and go out for a corner. Let the big guys come up. Let's get let's get one of our now famous goals from ahead of the season, um, which has been something rare for us. Uh, but he, credit to him, he 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 chases the ball down. He's able to pick it up on the byline, and he he if you watch him, he's look as he puts his head up, he's looking to see who to pass to, and from his eyes, he looks like he's going to be cutting it back to the penalty spot. So you can actually see the defender sort of shift that way. And then at the last second, he just closes his foot as he crosses it. And it's obviously a near post, beautiful ball into the box. And um, credit to Firmino because, I mean, that's pure instinctive strikers finishing. And you can see he's starting to develop that, 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 that um, strikers finish, which I suppose some people were complaining about at the beginning of the season and the whole talk of, okay, uh, Firmino shouldn't be the number one striker for Liverpool. Maybe we should get... You know, a Lacazette or a Morata or someone like that. But the, the tele, telepathy between the players, ooh, big word. Um, they, they definitely looked in sync. They definitely knew what they were both trying to do in that. Firmino knew I'm running far post, then cutting back near post, and this ball's coming straight to me. And it was a very, very cheeky finish. Uh, I was just disappointed I didn't get to see any of the eccentric Firmino celebrations afterwards. I think the players, the players got to him a bit too quickly. Um, but yeah, it was a very, very beautiful goal. It, it sort of killed the game off, I think, for, for Watford. Right, so there's not much to talk about the issue of the game, actually. Watford stopped really being a, a force of any resistance and uh, and we just scored a ton of goals. But I thought one of the things that were, uh, apart from the Mo Salah show that happened, 
interesting things was Danny Ings came on, Tom, and he came on. He did. He, he was busy. He, he was a lot of movement and he created a couple chances, you know, and uh, he didn't get his goal. It would have been nice for him to get his goal, but he did disrupt Watford a little bit and got in amongst places where we suddenly had two people, three people, you know, in, in an area now attracted towards what Danny Ings was doing and his pace and his movement and his just nuisance, just making a nuisance of himself in the Watford defense got us a couple chances. Is that, you know, how do you see his role? We will talk about him a bit later, but how do you see his role going forward in the squad? Is is that an appropriate role for him? Do you see it uh, just coming on sort of late in games and being able to do that, to just sort of be a nuisance to opposition defenders? I'm not sure he's going to get in as one of the top three, but maybe as that squad function, w- would that be something that you could foresee for Danny Ings? I mean, it's interesting. We'll come on to talk a little bit more about Danny Ings later on, I think, but... um. I I quite like Danny Hanks. I really do. I think he's a good player. I think he offers quite a lot to the team. I think it's very interesting. He's been kind of written off because of his injuries, but there's no actual sort of evidence that he was ever not good enough for Liverpool. A lot of people seem to think, oh, well, Danny Hanks, he's not good enough for Liverpool. But there isn't really actually that much evidence to suggest that. He had a good season at Burnley before we bought him. And then he came in and he had a good start to the season uh, under Brodge. And he just, as I say, it's just been his injuries that have killed him. I don't, I think there's evidence there to suggest that he is good enough to play a role at this side at, at this level. Um, obviously he's not someone like an Aubameyang, someone like a, a Lacazette that a lot of fans wanted us to sign that's going to bang in 20, 30 goals a season, but that's, that's not the role he's going to be asked to play. I think, like you said, he, he does offer a lot of really good movement and he's getting himself into good positions. It is a shame he hasn't scored for us this season, but I think that will come in time. It's just a case of getting him getting him fit and firing. And I really think he does have something to offer to this team. Um, obviously, he's not going to challenge for me, no, but I think you need players like that because we're going to struggle to go out in the summer and, and sign a striker like, for example, the one that's been linked, Timo Werner. And, you know, he's not going to come because he's not going to be ex- expected to play. He'll be a player who wants to play, wants to play 90 minutes week in, week out. We're not going to be able to go out and sign a, a, a good striker because the simple truth is no one's going to get ahead of Bobby. And we can't buy someone who's going to want to be a first-choice striker when we've got Bobby Firmino in the team. So we are going to have to make use of the likes of Ings and sort of say, you know what, if if, if Firmino's not fit, you can get a three, four-game run and hopefully he can contribute to the team because I think he can do a lot of the stuff that Bobby can do. Uh, and we don't necessarily need to rely on someone like Danny Ings to produce the goals because we've got the likes of Salah and Mane in the team. All right, guys, I have said it, but the performance from Mo Salah was just utterly different class. I mean, four goals. He was just untouchable the entire game. Tom, there are people around who are talking about Mo Salah being perhaps the best in the premiership and right up there with the best in the world, comparing him to sort of um, Messi, Ronaldo and that kind of ilk. That is a, a huge claim to make, I think, at the moment. But I think it's very clear that the king of Egypt, as the cop has, has taken to him, is really just doing the business. He's... He, He's online to break Premier League scoring records, that kind of thing. But there's this claim. How good is he in terms of what we have that's best in the Premiership? I think we're looking at, you know, sort of the Kevin, Kevin De Bruyne's of the world and that kind of thing. And, and is it fair to claim at the moment that he is one of the best players in the world at this point in time? I am one of those people making those claims. Um, I'm going to be I'm going to be writing an article uh, next few days. I basically say basically looking. I'm going to have a look at some of the stats of Salah. I haven't actually done the stats look yet, but I would be very surprised if they didn't suggest that he is up there. Um, I think he is the best player in the Premier League right now. I think he's banging in goals for fun. Um, he's contributing to the team in a big way. He can do basically everything: left foot, right foot, header. Um, for a player his size to score headers is frankly ridiculous but he somehow manages to find space in the box um i think he's he's got so many brilliant attributes he's so quick he works hard he's a brilliant finisher he gets himself into positions to score goals his positioning his intelligence his passing game is really good as well and i think one of the maybe one of maybe one of the underrated elements of his game is that he does have 10 assists in all competitions for us this season he's got nine assists in the league and there aren't too many players in the premier league let alone in this liverpool side that have got nine assists in the premier league i think I'm looking at it now. Only only Leroy Sane and Kevin De Bruyne have more assists in the Premier League. That is such an underrated element of his game. Um, I think if you look, I mean, if you're looking at uh, the Premier League, is there the only other player who's in the conversation is De Bruyne because he's a different kind of player. Um, in terms of pure goal scoring, he's the best in the league. He's the best. He's maybe not the best goal scorer in Europe, but he's up there. 
Uh, I mean, if you take if you take Messi out of the equation, is there anyone that you'd instantly say is better than Salah in Europe? I don't think so. Um, other than obviously Ronaldo when he's at his best, which he's getting somewhere close to. So, I mean, I mean, Ronaldo's getting past his best now. He's only got, this might be his last, like, you know, properly good season. So, I think, I mean, if, if you're looking at the goal-scoring charts, he he's four clear of anyone else in Europe now. He's just an elite-level striker. He's not even, a, as a striker, that's the best bet. He's just an elite-level player. And I think when we signed him, we we knew he was going to be good because all the stats indicated he was one of the top five in Europe in his position. But now he's gone from being one of the top five in Europe in his position to being one of the top five players in Europe, period. Tadiwa, yeah, there does seem to be such an um, immense excitement around Mo Salah now. Every time he got the ball, and it's, you know, you could, it was palpable. The first couple times he got the ball against Watford, especially when he was on the ball, just this huge electricity goes up around the crowd, you know, a murmur of anticipation and excitement as to what he's going to do. But I mean, we've got in the Premier League, like I say again, compare him to Kevin De Bruyne and maybe David De Gea globally. There's a whole nother bracket now. That's, that's Lionel Messi, Ronaldo. I don't know if we can compare him to Lionel Messi, um, and Ronaldo, but I mean, what is it for you? Is he the best in the premiership? Is he the best in the world at the moment? Um, I think we can start in, in the premiership and say, I, I do think, um, at the beginning of the season, it, it was De Bruyne. I think he was playing some scintillating football. But over the course of the season, I, I don't see how you can argue against Mo Salah being the best player so far, this entire, if you take the whole season, um, in, into perspective. And then you also have to, um, if you were to compare and let's say with Harry Kane, as you mentioned, Kate, he's not a striker. He's actually a winger and he said as much. And if you actually look at the heat map of yesterday's game, that, that definitely shows that he's a winger. He's not a striker. And then also you have to take into consideration that it is his first season, um, at, at Liverpool. So there's also some adjustment that had to take place there. Obviously, he's adapted pretty well. And then third, third, third point is you have to take into consideration that Spurs' team is based around Harry Kane. Everything that team does is geared towards getting Harry Kane to score more goals. I mean, the way they play, the build-up they use, it, it's sort of... Um, it's sort of like an arrow. If you, if you were to, to, to picture an arrow, the team is sort of pointing towards Harry Kane and he's the one that finishes everything off. Whereas if you were to look at Liverpool's team, um, and men, many may argue this, that actually the focal point of Liverpool's team is actually Robert, Roberto Firmino. So he's getting, so if you look at Mo Salah, he's getting 28 goals in the league in a team that's not even technically built around him. He, he, he's sort of that, that extra flavor that, that, that makes teams good. And, and it's, it's such a joy to watch because it's, it's, it reminds me of Iron Robin when, when he was at Chelsea in the sense of, you know, that Iron Robin is cutting in onto his left foot and he's bending it into the far corner. You know that as a defender, every single defender knows that anyone that's watched football for more than two minutes will know, will tell you exactly what Iron Robin is doing. Yet, Mohamed Salah is the same situation. You know what he's able to do. He's cut, he wants to cut in on that favored foot and he's looking to score. But the dangerous thing is after yesterday's game, he's just shown he's more than capable of cutting onto his right foot now. Now as a defender, because I mean, he scored two goals with his right foot yesterday and he was willing to go on the outside. Now as a defender, that's a whole nother aspect of the game. They're going to have to be taking into account of he's not just going to be cutting in. And I think that's what left um, a lot of the Watford players on the floor in that they were anticipating him to, to, to cut onto his favorite left foot, but he still had the ability to still jink to the other side. His center of gravity is that of, of the Agueros, the Suarez is where you just don't know where, where he's going to go from that. And it, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful thing to watch, um, especially having lost Suarez. We, we needed that player again. That, that had that sort of competitive nature to, yes, I'm going to get the goals. Um, but he's also got that willingness to, to, to see a pass. I mean, that pass he gave to Danny Ings, he was sort of saying, come on, did you have to score? It was like the whole team wanted Danny Ings to score yesterday. And, and Salah could have easily, you know, wrapped it around the defender. Um, he could have used the defender as a sort of as a shield and the keeper would have seen the, the, the ball way too late to try and make a, a save, but he had the wherewithal to see Danny Ings in a better position than himself, 
and he played it through to him. Um, and if you look at the Premier League, I think Simon Brandish um, came up uh, was the one that tweeted this. That if you look at the Premier League era in terms of players that are scoring goals and assisting, it's only Thierry Henry and um, I can't remember who who else it was, but it was something like Thierry Henry and one other person, and then Mo Salah in terms of getting the double digits of scoring goals and assisting. So it seems like at the moment he's the whole package. All right, I think that's a really good segment to transition us into what we're going to talk about now, the second half of the pod, so to speak, which is just to you know look at a couple of things that I have pitched up in this game, a couple of issues that have come up in this game, but it, it gives us a chance to talk about our, the squad at Liverpool and sort of what's going to happen, how we anticipate things going. It's quite interesting that in certain blocks of the pitch, in certain functions, we've got... A little versus battles. So, you know, if we look at our squad relations, little versus battles. So we're going to take functions and we're going to put, you know, squad members against each other. And we're going to see what's going to happen. How does this resolve itself? What do our panel think should happen and what might happen maybe in the summer and in transfers or, you know, um, what happens in the meantime? So, yeah, let's start now with the the i don't think we can talk a lot about the goalkeeping because that seems to be a bit too out in the open you have uh, a young goalkeeper in carries which seems to be number one that's fair and fine and resolution of that just seems to be going to buy another keeper and stuff like that and if you want to talk about that but i do want to talk about the center-back position and it seems to be a lovren versus matip type of setup lovren Maybe we can even say drop for this match. I'm not really sure. There was no indication of that. But Matip coming in, who's also not really had a really good uh, decision. I'm really happy with the decision to drop Lovren because I think it's a bit like Mignolet now. And it, it was just done and it's time for us to move on. But Matip comes in. Is he much better? How much better is he? What can he do better? Tom, between the two of them, how do you see that little versus battle going? Um, here's what I would do. Um, Matip plays every game between now and the end of the season, apart from potentially one or two games where we need to rest him if we get into a Champions League semi-final. Um, and then Lovren starts when he is... Yeah, Lovren's sort of the third choice. And then at the end of the season, we get at least one more good good enough centre-back in to make Matip the third choice option, and we bin Lovren. That's the way I would do it. Um, I think a lot of people have been saying Lovren's form has improved recently, and I think there's a fair argument to that. Lovren has been better... And Matip has been slightly worse over the last few months. But I think the net result of that is that Matip's still marginally better than Lovren. Um, and to be honest with you, I don't trust Lovren. As far as I can throw him time and time again, he's demonstrated that you cannot trust him. Um, I was watching a compilation thread of Lovren's errors uh, on Twitter recently. And it's like, you know what? I don't like compilation threads for errors generally because I think that, you know, you can highlight any one element of a player's game and sort of say, well, look at this stuff he's doing badly. I mean, as you've said, you can create a compilation of Messi making mistakes. But when you're looking at a compilation thread of errors that are A, horrendous, and B, directly lead to goals consistently against us in a shambolic fashion, that's a different kettle of fish. You know, that's that's you're looking at a centre-back who's routinely costing the side goals. Um, and I think a lot of people thought he'd be a good matchup to play Lukaku and... That ended about as well as you might have expected it to. Um, I think, for me, here's the thing about Lovren. And I've said this before, and I, I'll say it again. Lovren is a really, really good defender for 88 minutes in a match. If for 88 minutes in a 90, 95-minute match, you can trust Dejan Lovren to be a good defender. But for the other five or so, you can't. And in those five, he can easily ship us four goals. That's the thing. And you, you can't have a defender in your team who, for 88 minutes in a match, is going to be fine. But for five minutes in a match could cost you three goals in that in that time frame. Because that he could. That's legitimately how bad he is. He could do that. He could just drop a two out of ten for five minutes and the team is in the toilet. That's exactly what happened against United. He was absolutely fine for the majority of the match. But two moments of just complete, you know, just awful. And we've conceded two goals. And that's what he... It spurs, spurs away is the other perfect example where Lovren just had a nightmare for ten minutes or so. And we're 2-0 down before we even blinked. And it, you can't trust a defender who like that. And yes, Matic will make mistakes, but he won't make anywhere near as many as Lovren will. No, yeah, I agree with that. Just stick Matip in there. I just, uh, I'm tired of Lovren. I'm tired of being tired of Lovren. I just want that situation to be resolved now, man. And I don't want to wait for him to... Anyway, I mean, to do what? Let's move on to 
the left-back situation? Because you have an interesting situation there. Uh, Andy Robertson, more recently, a lot of people have been singing his praises and talking about how well he's adapted. We saw a situation earlier in the season where Moreno was doing really well, where he was in the team and before he was doing all the things we wanted him to do, as Andy Robertson, I suppose, is really doing now. He fell out the team, Andy Robertson came in, but while Moreno was in, he was keeping Andy Robertson out. Andy Robertson is now in the team. He's keeping Moreno out. We seem to have the situation where two left backs are vying for the same position. Not a lot of, you know, there's some Twitter communities, I suppose, where people are not sure about the situation <laughs> if they want Moreno or Robertson to be in. How do you see it? Would you rather the, these two vie it out for who's going to continually, you know, is, is there going to be a continual swapping around this position? And are you fine with that? Are you fine with the quality of both left backs to be able to fulfill this position for the next sort of five years or so? Or are you looking at one or the other and saying, we need to keep one and get rid of the other? Or, you know, we could even do this and say both are, are not the quality required of Liverpool Football Club. So what do you think about that? Um, before I jump to the left back situation, I, I feel like I have to get this off my chest. Whoever is in charge of media relations at Liverpool, please stop Lovren from making those pre-game interviews before a big match. Like, it just should be banned. But anyway, I, I had to get that out of <laughs> just to make myself feel a little bit better. But um, moving on to the, to the left-back position, I think um, you have to be careful when you're looking at sort of going into a transfer window and... Um, I know Wenger's not the most popular manager at the moment now, but I know a couple of years ago, um, Wenger mentioned this, and I've, I've heard other managers, other top managers mention this as well, um, but I heard it from Wenger first, in the sense that you can't expect to be making about five signings, you know what I mean, that are going to be, let's say, coming into your starting lineup or something like that, and expecting to do much in that coming season. About two or three you know, that are coming in and then maybe the guys that are starting then drop to the bench. That's a good way to bed players in. So when I look at the left-back position, I look at it in that sense of we only have a limited amount. First of all, we have a limited amount of money in terms of how much we are going to spend as a club. Um, and we, we're one of those clubs that are financially responsible. So so we can't pretend like um, this is FIFA and we've just, you know, put the cheat code to get a financial takeover or something like that. So one, we have to take into consideration how much money we have available in order to spend. And then also we have to look at how many new players are coming into the team. Now, I think we can get away with keeping Robertson and Moreno as the left-back pairing purely because we've got other positions that we need more attention to. I think Robertson, um, Robertson took his chance, which is what you want to see. Um, Moreno was having a really good season he was taken out of the limelight for about a year, and you can see they've been working with him. And I think the moment Robertson saw his chance, he 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 knew it was his, sort of like this is my one chance, and and he's 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 absolutely been amazing in that sense. So if you have Robertson continuing the form that he's in now, and then you have a Moreno that's backing him up, because now Moreno will no longer have that pressure of being the number one left back. I think for now. We can leave that position. Let's concentrate on, on other key areas in, in the team. Um, center back, as you mentioned, and I'm sure we're going to get into the middle of the park as well. So I, I think for now, we're, we're okay. We can go another season um, with, with Robertson and Moreno at the back. All right, so that's at left back. I don't know if you guys want to talk about right back. There seems to be so many variables there. You have Trent Alexander-Arnold, and you know he seems to be maybe one of the long-term options. But what's his replacement? Joe Gomez is maybe not destined for the right back. Maybe he's destined for centre back. I, I don't know. Is is there stuff there that you guys want to uh, discuss with the right back position? Um, I just want to quickly say on the left back situation, I agree. Keep Robbo one, keep Albi two. But if Moreno wants to leave, there's no harm in selling him for 15 million and getting a young replacement for a similar amount of money as a backup. Um, with the right back situation, oh, I really don't know. It, there's so many factors to consider. You don't know what's going to happen with Klein in the summer. You don't know wh what's going to happen with Gomez. What I would say is that right now I would be banking on Trent Alexander-Arnold to be the right back for the next decade or so. And for that, You've got it. So for me, how you rotate the team, how you go about playing your right back situation should 
for me, should be geared entirely about how we're going to get the best out of Trent long term. Uh, so if we're going to, if Trent is going to benefit from playing 10, 15 games in a row between now and the end of the season, you do that. If, like against Watford, you think it's a good idea to take Trent out of the limelight because he's had a tough game and he's played a lot of minutes recently, then you do that as well. I don't think Gomez is anything special. I, I, I'm one of those few people who have uh, on, on record are saying I don't think Gomez is anything special at all, either at centre-back or at right-back. So I would play Trent as the first choice, but I'm aware of the fact that Trent's a young player and you've got to try and manage his minutes somehow. So it, for me, the right-back situation is is straightforward. You just do whatever you need to do to make sure that Trent's going to be the best player he can be in the next few years. And as you mentioned, Tom, um, in the ideal world, uh, Klein comes back. And if Klein comes back and is able to produce the sort of form he he had before he got injured, I think then that's the perfect way to then have um, Alexander-Arnold sort of develop into the player that he's going to become because then you know you still got Klein. He's a solid um, right back and he can take sort of the, the bulk of the heavy minutes that need to be taken. And then Trent is just slowly, slowly, slowly in being introduced because I think that the the worry I have with Trent, and it's it's a worry that a lot of, uh, you see it with a lot of young English players, in that they get played way too much, way too quickly. If you look, for example, in the in the Bundesliga, they don't have like an under-18s. It's sort of like an under-20s group. So the players have, have those extra two years to sort of develop before they're thrown into these sort of big games. And I think we have to be careful not to burn out players like Trent Alexander. We want to see him at 31, 32, still, you know, playing at a high level, not not in the sense of, you know, sort of like the Rooney's way by 30, um, he's looking to go to America and stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. I think Klopp's done a good job of managing Trent so far this season. He's uh, he's 15th in the team for minutes, 15th for about 15th for appearances as well. So he's not playing loads and loads and loads of football, which I like. Uh, I do think he is ready to play a bit more. However, I completely agree. You don't want to burn him out too early. Um, I think Klein coming back to his best would be ideal. I'm slightly sceptical that we're ever going to get Klein back at the form he was in last couple of years. So I'm slightly sceptical that that's practical. But obviously, if it can, if we can do that, that would be ideal. All right. Now, that brings us to one of my favorite functions, most contentious one in Liverpool, which is the midfield function. I just don't like some of the options we have there, to be honest. I just feel that we sort of lack control in particular games, especially when we come up against more higher quality teams in the Premier League, like we're seeing now in Europe. I worry about that. When other teams control the midfield, when they control the space, we seem to just really be, you know, it, it seems to be very difficult for us to con- to retake control of the game, to change the course of the game, that sort of stuff. In the midfield, how I'm looking for it, bizarrely, I think it's going to be a choice between Hendo and Genie because Emre Chan is there. If he leaves, he leaves. Uh, and then Nabi's going to come in. Nabi's going to be uh, first choice. I think if Chan stays. He's also first choice generally. I think, well, you guys can obviously debate that if you want. But Tom, again, if we're looking at the midfield, I think Milner, who's there in a weird way, just because he is so versatile in terms of the midfield, he can go anywhere, but he's aging and he's just part of the squad now. I think he's happy with that role. So I don't really think he's going to go anywhere. He's going to do anything. I think he's, uh, we're comfortable with what he can give us and what he can do. But really, we're looking at the choice between Hendo and Genie and what they offer in midfield. Who is the first choice for you and what would you do with the other one? Uh, well, right now, the midfield is really interesting um, because for me, it's Emre plus two uh, right at this second between now and the end of the season. Emre is the only midfielder I would say is clearly first choice. I think the other four are fighting for two spots. And I think it's fair to say over the last few weeks, we haven't seen a lot of differentiation in terms of quality. Um, I would say... Milner and Hendo are pretty much interchangeable in what they're offering in terms of quality week in, week out. They're pretty solid. Um, Ox is inconsistent, but at his best, he's an explosive, dynamic player who offers more than anyone else in that midfield. But at his worst, offers less than any of them. So it's very much a mismatch. Genie, uh, I'm on record as saying I don't like Genie, and I think he should be maybe not sold, but I wouldn't want him anywhere near the first team if I can help it. So... If you're asking me Hendo versus Genie, it's Hendo every day of the week just because I really don't think Wijnaldum's that good. I think he's the one player that Klopp signed that I don't think has made his mark on the team properly. I don't think he offers enough defensively. I don't think he offers enough on, on the ball. Um, 
a lot of people talk about how he can do the intangibles, but I think we're just as good without him in the team. And I think fundamentally, um, if I was to pick a first choice midfield right now, you're probably looking at Emre, Henderson and Ox. But realistically, I think Milner's interchangeable in that as well. Um, so, yeah, I think in terms of looking forward into the summer, um, let's hope we can keep Emre. But if we don't, we need to replace him. So we need to sign someone that's good enough to play alongside Naby. Um, and then I think between Oxlade, Chamberlain, Henderson, Milner, they can pretty much pick up the rest of the minutes. Um, obviously, Wijnaldum will get minutes there as well because Cop likes him and he is a decent player, although I don't think he's as good as the others. That's basically my take on the midfield situation. But for me, it's just about Emre. Emre's the best midfielder we've got by a country mile. We need to be doing absolutely everything we can to keep hold of him. And if we've got Emre, Naby plus one, that's a, that's a title winning midfield in my opinion. Yeah, to deal with this is a big question. Uh, you know, usually we'll go one for one, but I want your opinion on this. What's your take on the midfield? You have um, obviously the choices there. I, I didn't put Ox in because I just sort of assumed that Klopp had bought him for you know a longer term project and therefore will not be sold immediately, kind of thing. But to deal with, what's your opinion? Genie versus Hendo. What do you think about our midfield options? Um, just to touch on Milner, first of all, we also have to take into consideration that he does also, first of all, he he adds to the English quota in terms of English players in the team. And then also he adds experience. He seems like one of the, 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 the guys in the team that I could say he could actually become a coach. You can see what the way he speaks, the way he reads the game, the way he analyzes the game. He knows what he's talking about. Um, he was the one player at the beginning of the season that was complaining at the fact that we're, we're struggling to manage games. Now, um, so you can see he's got the brain. And if, if you can keep those type of players around to help, even if he's, he's coming into games now and then, and when he comes into the game, you know Mona's going to give you minimum 7 out of 10 every single time. You know what I mean? And that's, that's something that's, that's key for, for a midfield in the sense of there are games in the season where you're going to need to rest players, but you're scared to bring someone off the bench. But at least you know if I bring Molnar on that I know what I'm going to get from him. You can still put the fancy players in and around him to, to help elevate the team. But at least you know that set position is going to be pretty solid. And then moving on to, uh, the Genie and Henderson debate. I think, um, in terms of Henderson, the, uh, I think uh, Henderson, a fit Jordan Henderson, definitely, he, 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 he's definitely key for that midfield. But the issue I have with Henderson, and I suppose it's probably the similar issue I have with Lalana, is both of them have been injured more than Sturridge in the last three years. Like Sturridge has been available for more games than Henderson and Lalana. But when we look at Henderson and Lalana, we talk about them like guaranteed starting players, but it comes very far and few between. Like, I'm scared of, of, of Henderson's injury problems. Like, you sort of basically have to have another midfielder ready to come in because we just don't know if he's capable of, he's, he's not capable of playing a full season. So he's effectively, the way I've seen Henderson is I see him as a squad player. When he's there, it's good because he, he does add something to the team, but I'm not expecting him to be there for more than 30 games in a Premier League season. Unfortunately, his body just can't do that. And then with regards to, to Genie, I think he might stay um, just purely out of numbers, just uh, as a make weight. But uh, as Tom was, was relaying to, as you were relaying to, he hasn't really hit the marks that we would have expected from him or maybe that he, he would have expected. Um, but I still think he's one of those players where he... he if he's okay being a squad player, then, then I don't see him, you know, sort of being sold. It will be one of those situations where, um, Klopp will come out and say, Genie has said he wants more minutes and that's why we sold him. But in terms of would we outright sell him? I can't see us selling him. And then obviously the big contentious one is Emre Chan. Um, I'm, I agree with Tom. We, we have to keep him. He is the, the, the focal point in our midfield in terms of, both talent and also potential. Um, it, it would really be frustrating to see a player like Emre, who we've sort of nurtured from a young age, and then the, the time when he's starting to enter his peak years, we lose him, and not just lose him, we lose him for free, which would absolutely be gutting. I mean, this is a guy that's been in German under-18s, under-19s, under-21s, and the German national team all throughout his career. And in, in terms of... 
everyone sees Emre Chan's game sort of, it's like a cup final. Every single game for Emre Chan is a cup final. If he plays badly, he plays badly. Everyone ridicules him or whatever. If he plays well, then there are people that cheer for him. But if you look over the course of a season, um, I think he is still developing and he still will get that consistency. And not to forget, Emre Chan is the one player in that midfield, so to speak. Maybe you could add Milner into there, who is willing to play whilst he's got a niggle. We saw, obviously, yesterday he had that back niggle during the week, but he was still willing to play. You do also need those type of players that are willing to go through that pain barrier during the season for the better of the team. Um, in terms of what we do in the summer, if, if Emre Chan goes, I think we will be looking to bring two midfielders in um, because he does fill, he not only fills the sixth role, he fills the eighth role as well. But um, if he's able to stay, what I'm hoping for is then we can bring one more player in. I mean, there, there's a plethora of players that you could look at. Um, first and foremost, I don't think we should expect Klopp to sign sort of a Wanyama or a William Carvalho, those sort of destroyer midfielders. Klopp, he, he reminds me of Wenger in the sense that he's just never going to play with one, one of those type of players. He wants his defensive midfielder to basically be a quarterback. So you have to have that that passing ability, that that generalship um, in your play. So then then you start looking at players. Maybe you could throw a few in there. Um, you have Tosar at um, which go at Leon, who who who's a young uh, defensive midfielder. He came into the team as a destroyer, but you can see as the season has gone on, he's actually developed into more of that quarterback. Um, looking to feed the ball into the feet of the the, the wider the winger players, uh, the Memphis Depays and stuff they have there. So he has he has slightly more of the defensive side of it. So it will be interesting to see if Klopp would take him, but he 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 is still capable of um, threading a pass through. And then also in also once again in that Leon team because they have two really good youngsters. They've got uh, Ndombele that's also there, not that sort of an athletic. Um, sort of like an uh, an DD mode mold from from Leicester, sort of that athletic. He he's he's very good at just getting himself in um, about the pitch, um, but he's slightly more forward thinking. So he would probably come in as cover for like an eight position. But um, then you have a strong player that can play the six or the eight. And then um, in terms of obviously realistic targets, the one I personally think if Emre Chan stays, then we got to bring in Dendonka from Anderlecht. Um, now this is a player. He he's currently playing in a four-three-three system, and he's playing as the six in that four-three-three. And then sometimes in the season they've gone to a four-two-three-one, and he he's had a partner there, so he can play the four-two-three-one. Sort of if you play him with maybe Navigator in a two, but he he also plays that that holding position. Um, he's a big lad. He's about six foot one, six foot two. Um, he's very good in the air, and if you see. Um, sort of, um, you've got Van Dyke there. You've got, let's say, Lovren and Matip, who are very good in the air. If your defensive midfielder is good in there as well, he can help. Sort of like that situation where um, Lovren was sprinting up to try and win the header with Lukaku. In that situation, Lovren drops deep, and you let the defensive midfielder handle that. And Dundonka is more than physically capable to then drop into that position and challenge the striker. And then the, the, that that's just his defensive work. In terms of his passing, he probably has the best passing in terms of young players, young midfield players um, in world football at the moment. He, he He's able to, he's ambidextrous, so he's able to pass with both his left foot and his right foot. Now, if you have a player like that and he's got Mane and Salah, you know, bombing forward on the counter-attack, and he, it doesn't matter which foot the ball's on, he's spraying a ball to, to those guys. I think that could be quite a tasty um, player to have. So I think we do still need definitely that controlling midfielder um, in terms of Genie and Henderson, I think Genie might survive. Um, especially if, if Emre Chan leaves, then Genie definitely will survive, I think. Um, and then in terms of Henderson, I think he, he will survive purely because Klopp also knows that Henderson's not going to be available for every single game. So there's not that pressure of Henderson is actually being benched too much because a lot of the time, unfortunately, he's actually not available. All right, all right. I'm going to move the I'm going to move the talk on now to our advanced options. And I know I'm not going to do that. I don't think our, our front three are touchable at the moment. They are 
exactly where they are and doing the job that I would love them to do. So I'm, I, that, that's fine for me. But what I want to talk about is their replacements. And really, I mean, what what are the options we have there? It looks like, you know, Divock Origi is on loan. I don't think Sturridge comes back. I think he's gone to West Brom Albion. And if his injuries allow, I think he'll be sold as, as quickly as he can and, and his wages cleared off the books. But you have an interesting... Uh, what we have there is it looks like our our immediate replacements are Solanke versus Danny Ings. And Danny Ings, as we discussed earlier, Tom, he sort of fits in that role, right? He sort of fits in that role of what we're trying to do with the front line, just be a nuisance, get in amongst them, pace, movement, link-up play. Maybe he can sort of almost even play across the front three as a squad player, importantly, you put it there. Dom Solanke, that's a bit of a different one. He seems to be a more traditional number nine, even though we can massage him into something that's a bit different, a bit better. He has potential. Then you have Divock Origi, who's done well, maybe doesn't fit the system, some people are saying. And, you know, again, Sturridge, I, I don't think Sturridge is going to play. What do you think about our replacement options? Do we have to buy to get people in, or do we have enough as it is, Tom? Um, I am, again, I'm on record as being a huge fan of Divock Origi, and I'm going to stand by that now. I absolutely love Divi. I think he's a really top player. I think he's got the potential to be a really good striker. Um, I would definitely keep him as our second choice backup. Um, I, I just think we need to play. He, he sit, fits the system really well, and I think he absolutely operates as a really good option. Um, in terms of specifically Solanke versus Ings, I would I, obviously I wouldn't. I think maybe loan out Solanke because I think he's at that age where he needs to be getting regular minutes, and I would maybe do what Chelsea would have done, which is loan him to someone like Bates. Or someone in Holland, or somewhere in uh, Germany, maybe just to get just to get him some minutes under his belt because I do think he would benefit from that because I think he's he's got potential, but I just I haven't seen enough um, from him just yet to suggest that he's going to um, necessarily explode. Whereas I think with Ings, you know what you're going to get. You know he's a good player, a really top. Uh, uh, sorry, he works really hard. So he's a really top professional. He is the sort of player who absolutely deserves another chance. I think, as I say, he does contribute to goals. He will chip in with goals. And as I said earlier, I think he, he really does have something to add to this side. So if I was going to look at it, I'd say you keep Ings as your third choice, keep Divi as the second choice, and then you would loan out Solanke. Because I think at the moment, I think Solanke's a good long-term option, but I think he's too young and not good enough yet to walk into this team. And I think you've still got a few year, a few good years out of Ings. And obviously Divi's only 23 as well. So... You've got so many. You've got. I think you've got a lot of good young options in that position. Where I think I don't necessarily think we do need to go out and buy another striker. Um, if something happens to Firmino, then then we're in a different different issue. But we'll see. Uh, I I like all three of Solanke, Ings, and Origi. But for me, it's Origi, then Ings, then Solanke. Did you? We just react to Tom there. I like what Tom is saying about our our four options and his opinions there, but. Are they adequate replacements for our two inside forwards or, you know, inverted wingers, however you want to call them? Is it enough there? Because we seem to have striking options, but not enough replacement there. If, heaven forbid, touch wood, and I'm, I'm literally touching wood at the moment, that nothing happens to Mo Salah or Sadio Mane. Do we have enough backup in those positions? Um, I, in terms of the wingers, I don't think we do. I still think we we would benefit from an, an, someone that's naturally a wide player to, to come in and sort of where they can come in on games when you, you need to rest. Either You don't need to rest necessarily all of the front three, but at least someone that allows each of them to be rested every now and then. And again, you know what I mean, which is um, what Coutinho sort of offered us. Um, I know everyone's spoken a lot about how we played better without Coutinho than with him um, earlier in the season. But you also have to take into account the fact that some of the games we played without Coutinho were because he played the previous game and allowed a Salah to rest, allowed a Mane to rest, allowed a Firmino to rest. So now these guys are coming into games uh, pretty fresh. So if we can bring someone in that, that can... You know, you've got uh, maybe a Mares might be too expensive because I think they're they they're keen to get about sixty million for him. But you've got um, sort of the Baileys and stuff at by Leverkusen who could come in um, as a wide player, a direct wide player that can one they can offer us something different because all of our um, wide players, so to speak, both Salah and Mane, they love to cut in. They they they're naturally you know inclined to to 
to score goals in that way. So maybe someone different, maybe even, I, I honestly wouldn't even mind like a Zaha. If he, he, you know, he knows he's coming in as sort of the, the backup to any of the front three if something happens. Um, in terms of the, the ones we do have at the moment, if you look at, um, I, I do agree with Tom. I think Origi is the best one out of, out, out of the three. If you look at Origi, Ings and, uh, Solanke. And I, I, and I've never seen why people have such a problem with Origi. I mean, the two seasons when he came into Liverpool were back to back seasons where he got double digits. Um, and no matter how much people will Danny Ings and how much we will Solanke, um, the bottom line is, unfortunately, those guys aren't putting the ball in the net. You know what I mean? Whereas Origi was doing that. Um, but, but I think the problem I have with Origi, and I, I would love him to stay, but it's similar. He reminds me, not in playing style, but in terms of situation, he reminds me of Sturridge in the sense that if Klopp doesn't think you're fitting the system, then he's not, you're not going to be in favor with him. And I'm scared that Origi was falling into that trap of, I don't know whether it was defensively or whether off the ball. It just seemed like Klopp wasn't too happy with what he was doing in terms of the, the defensive shape of the system that would allow him to then play, you know, um, Klopp, you know, Klopp doesn't play players unless he fully trusts them. But if, if Origi and, um, if Klopp is able to train him and mold him, he's got all the attributes. He's big enough to be physical in the air. He's got the technical ability. He's got the goal scoring um, prowess, and and he's proven he can score double digits uh, digits while playing for Liverpool. So I think he would be the best of the three in terms of Danny Ings. I think stylistically, maybe not ability wise, but stylistically, he's the closest we have to Firmino in terms of that he's willing to run. You know what I mean? So if if let's say for now, let's say if God forbid Firmino got injured now, I would rather Ings be put up front and keep Salah and Mane in there because uh, a lot of people would say maybe Salah would then go up front. But then that would that might take away a lot of his game. I'd personally rather have Ings up there because we know he's still got that sort of movement that he would offer that that Firmino offers. He's got that mobility, he's willing to run, he's willing to defend, and you keep Salah and Mane carrying on doing what they're doing. So Ings still has value from a stylistic perspective. And to be fair, he's, he's been injury ridden. So we still don't know, as Tom was saying earlier, we don't have a big enough sample size to actually see what he's capable. He's getting into positions. It's just now if he can get that finishing touch, um, he could actually be a really, really underrated, um, dep- deputy to Firmino. And then I agree with Tom once again with regards to Solanke. I do think he needs to go out on loan. Um, I think Klopp, Klopp doesn't like to loan players too much in the sense that he wants them to, to learn under him. But I think, uh, with Solanke, he's at that age where he, he, he's, he's too old to still be playing in the under 21s in terms of, I'm talking about football years, like football maturity, not necessarily his physical age. I think he, he, he now needs to actually ply his trade week in, week out and sort of start to mold himself into, into the player he's going to become. So, yeah, I think loan out Solanke, um, keep Danny Ings, um, and then try and get an, 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 an attacking player in the mold of a Zaha who can play up front or he can cover both the wings. Right. So that is just about all the time we have for today. Excellent pod. Just not forget the result. 5-0 against Watford. Absolutely wiped them off the, off the field really today. It's been a good day. Really good discussion, guys, about all the places uh, up for grabs along our squad and and maybe what's going to happen next season. So thanks very much for that. Huge thanks to my panel. I'm going to let you guys do some plugs now. Tom, you've got to have an AR actor spot coming out soon. Uh, I've got one coming up. We're doing it Thursday, so it'll probably be out on Friday. The um, the latest one we we did is still up. If you want to listen to that, that was actually on was one of the things we touched on in this one. We talked about the midfield uh, and how we how you'd look at the midfield how we solve the midfield issues and we and we had um Alex Barillaro on who is really good at that sort of thing he's he's uh, he really likes Ruben Neves amongst other things and we also had Ash Hebs on who had we had a really good discussion about how the United game is uh, nothing more than a blip uh and just had a little bit of a chat about you know a little bit of a chat about United in general but also some other aspects that fell out of that so yeah that was a really good pod um and I've had a couple of articles out in the last week or so I'm not sure if they're still like being 
processed on the site, but they are still up there if you want to have a read. Uh, one of them is about how important Anfield is going to be and how we need to win all our home games to secure top four. And the Reds have proven me correct with a brilliant result. And um, just another piece about how we should be not worried about uh, the Champions League, whoever we play, which obviously we now know is City. So Very nice. Do check those out. To deal with for you, you seem to be doing a lot of pods recently. You got anything out on your side? Yeah. Um, so maybe shout out the, the post-match pod yesterday because I, I, I called into that as well. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a good pod. They also discussed sort of what to do with the midfield. So I think it's quite a hot topic at the moment. Um um, what to do with the midfield. So definitely it was with Gags, uh, Cambridge, and I think Michael Van Hoof, who, who was also on. Uh, it was really fun. And then also I wrote an article, I think it's probably about like two weeks ago now. So, um, I don't know if you still want to check it out. You might have to scroll down a bit on the article section. Um, the title was, if, if you build it, they will stay with regards to the likes of Firmino, Salah and Mane, giving them the platform and support players to, to help them achieve what what they want to achieve as a footballer and wanting to achieve that at Liverpool. Um, credit to Tom. I don't know how you get so many articles out. I mean, I wrote one and I, I was done for for a good while. So, so keep up the good work. Go check out his articles. They've been quite good to read. Cheers. <laughs> All right. That is it from us. Huge thanks to my panel. Massive thanks out to the listener. Thank you so much for all the input and everything. We will see you again for the next match. We'll catch you then. Until then, bye-bye. Let's get ready to rumble! Y'all ready for this? Sports Social Podcast Network.